Well, we're in part five of our series called Embrace. And I want to invite you right now to open your Bible to the Old Testament book of Jonah. This great little four-chapter book, it covers uh, maybe a little over two pages. It's a really quick read. You can probably read it in 10 or 15 minutes. Really great story, one that, that everybody is, is familiar with, and uh, one that uh, you know even our, our small children know this story. And right now you're probably thinking, what on earth does the book of Jonah have to do with racism? Well, you're about to find out, so just... Hang on, if my uh, neurons and brain are, are functioning correctly, then hopefully we'll get to that point and it'll become clearly. If not, then sorry. And you would understand why, given uh, <laughs> the events of the morning. But we're in, the, uh, we're in part five of this series. Now, I have said for five weeks in a row that this series is to help us learn to love one another better regardless of color. Today is the last part of this series that I preach. So today is, is, is it from me. This is my concluding message in this series. But next Sunday, John Smith is going to kind of tie a bow on everything. And he and I have been talking, and he's thinking about some things, and he's just going to kind of bring everything to a culmination next Sunday. So I really want to encourage you to be here next Sunday. For those of you that are not here because it's Labor Day weekend and I know are listening to the podcast, be here uh, because it's going to be great. I'm very excited uh, to hear from John. I think it's going to be uh, very, very, very encouraging. Uh, now, then, I know that these messages have not been easy to hear uh, because, and I know that because they've not been easy to preach. Okay, they've been very difficult. And I, you know, I've been, I've had somebody say, "Well, why aren't they?" Why are they not uh, easy? And I want to say, well, come try it out, and you'll see why. <laughs> but they're not always easy. You know, they've not been that, that, uh, that easy, but I'm grateful for your patience. I'm grateful for your love. Uh, I'm humbled by the grace that you've shown. Uh, I've been moved by the stories that you have shared with me, stories of uh, reconciliation that have gone on in your families or between someone that you know. And today... Today, and as I said, I've leaned on some, some pretty big people uh, along the way throughout this series, and so I'm excited to share with you some words from my, uh, my dear friend, my best friend in the world, uh, Jovan Barrington. Well, as I have said the previous four weeks, and now this is five every week, I have unapologetically stated that the greatest need in the world today is for those who have named Jesus Christ as their Lord to love people better. Yeah? Yes, we must love people better. So one more time, read with me. I'll read the white, you read the yellow. Now then, because it's Labor Day, we got a bunch out, so you're going to have to read especially loud today so the podcast picks you up. I'll read the white, you read the yellow. Beloved, because love is from God. Whoever... For God is love. As Christians, as Christians, we should be the ones who have cornered the market on love. Yes or no? We should be doing this better than absolutely anyone else. Why? Because God is love. Okay? 
And if we are God's people, we should be doing this better than anyone else. But the problem is, and you know this and I know this, is that sometimes we, we don't. But love, love should, should be our, our language. It should be our first reaction. It should characterize our, our very being. If we're going to, to be the people of God, then we must show people the love of God. To claim to love God and then yet not love people is to present a false witness. Loving people more means more than just loving people who you like, look like you, talk like you, vote like you, act like you, like and dislike the same things that you like and dislike. It means that you love them first and foremost because you and I have first and foremost been loved by God warts and all because we and they have been created in the image of God. Loving people more means that we love them no matter what they look like, talk like, vote like, act like, smell like, whatever it might be. We are to love people because to claim to love and know God and yet not love his people is to not really love God because God is love. Are you with me? Good. And when we discriminate on the basis of color or anything else, the love of God is not in that. You're right. When we discriminate on the basis of anything, the love of God is not in that. Well, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes we can put off and we can be guilty of putting off some important things. Um, we may have chosen to, to run away. Many people have said that racism is the church's problem. And the church is the hope of reconciliation in the world. What that means is that the world should be looking to the church to lead the way in this problem. Why? Because we are the people of God. And as the people of God, we are out loving the rest of the world. So we need to claim this problem as ours. Too many churches have turned a deaf ear to this. Too many churches have turned a blind eye and just allowed this to continue to happen for, for years and years and years. But we must stand up. We must, we, must, we must speak out because the church is the hope of reconciliation from the world. God's heart from the very beginning has always been for the salvation of the whole world to make all mankind one. And this morning I want to share a story with you about one man whom God used to, to save an entire city. His name, of course, is Jonah, and I have a picture of him. Now then, whether that's the actual biblical Jonah or not, it is a Jonah, at least. But if you know anything about your Bible... The rest, y'all going to be thinking like Brundon the rest of the sermon, those of you that have seen Night at the Museum. If you know anything about your Bible and about the book of Jonah, then you know that Jonah was a reluctant prophet. Okay? God called him, and he doesn't seem to care that he's been tasked to preach this message of salvation for the people in Nineveh. Uh, but other places kind of describe him as, as, as faithful. Yet when you read his book, he doesn't seem faithful at all. In fact, it seems like he, he lacks compassion. Now, then, this story is, is familiar to us all. We know this. God sees Nineveh. He sees what's happening there. He, 
He wants to spare this people from, from being overturned. And so he taps Jonah on the shoulder and he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go and I want you to preach this message to them so that these people will, will turn back. And instead of answering the call to go, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. He heads down and he, he boards a ship that is heading to Tarshish. Once on the ship, he goes off in the hold. He thinks he's escaped from God and he falls asleep story goes that God sends this great storm and it's threatening to overtake the ship and everybody's just going crazy and the, the, the crew decide to lighten the ship. It's in that chaos that, that Jonah wakes up and he sees what is going on and he has an immediate moment of, of recon, recognition and he says, hey, this is because of me, okay? He knew that he was running from God and he knew that God was causing this. He told him, he said, hey, look, this is the, I, I'm, I serve the God of the Hebrews this is happening because of me. The only way to resolve this, the only way to resolve this is to pick me up and throw me into the water, into the, into the sea, and then the tempest will, will calm itself. Now then, an outsider's point of view can look at that story and say, you know, that was a noble thing that, that Jonah wanted to do. Seems that he's willing to, to sacrifice his life, that he's willing to throw his life out into the sea so that everyone else could be rescued but I think when we look deeper in the story, what we realize is that what Jonah really wanted was to die. And I think we'll see that he would rather die than have to answer God's call to preach to Nineveh. And so they throw him overboard. But yet he doesn't die. We know that God appoints a great fish to come and, and swallow him. God rescues Jonah. God was determined to use Jonah to offer a call of reconciliation against these Ninevites, against these Assyrian people. Okay? Here's the thing. Reconciliation, you know, and, and I preached about reconciliation last week, and you remember what it's about. It's, it's things that were once a whole, but have been broken apart or, or separated, and it's a bringing back together of those things that were once apart, okay? Reconciliation, it's not something that is done in abstract, okay? It's not just some, some idea. Reconciliation is about proximity. It's about direction. It's about relationship. You have to get involved in order for, for reconciliation to come about. This is what God wants. He wants to reconcile the people of Nineveh, but, but, but Jonah refuses the call he refused to get close to the people so instead of going up to Nineveh he chose to he chose to go down and in doing so he's trying to put a, a great distance between himself and this great calling and so this this led him down down into the boat down into a, a deep sleep overboard and, and down into the deep, down into the fish, into the depths, into hell, into the grave, down into the bottom of the sea. And it was there, as the story goes, as Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, that he begins to pray. At his lowest 
point, Jonah's prayer rose to God. God appoints the fish to then spit Jonah out. And guess what? And, and, and you see this prayer language in, in, in chapter 2. From out of the pit, God calls Jonah again. And as you go back, maybe do that this week, go back and just read this story. You can read it in, in 10 or 15 minutes. But I want you to notice in chapter 2, as Jonah begins to pray, notice the resurrection language that is there. Three days, the pit, you know, Sheol, separation from God, and then Jonah is brought forth from the pit. So notice the resurrection language that was there. But it's there in that moment that God, for some reason, calls Jonah again. Would you? Because I don't know that I would. But God issues another call to Jonah. Why would he use someone that was so unwilling? Why would he use someone that was, was so reluctant? Why was he unwilling? Why was he reluctant to go to, to Nineveh in the first place? I think it's because Jonah, Jonah hated the Assyrians. You know, and it may be easy for me to say that, that Jonah hated the Assyrians. It's easy for me to stand here and say that Jonah was a, a racist because I'm a great distance from that city. I'm a great distance from Jonah. Okay, we're separated not only by thousands and thousands of miles, but we're separated by, by years and years and years and years and years. It's easy for me to say because I've never met the man. You see, I think it's generally easier it's generally easier to identify hate in someone else, isn't it? It's always easier to identify hate in someone else. But what, what about myself? I think most people would be quick to say that, you know, I love everybody. I think most people would be slow to admit that they hate someone or that they hate a, a, a people group. I believe when we talk about hating others that we tend to brush it off. We say, you know, that's, that's not me. Or we tend to, to pass it off and say, that's, that's someone else. You see, but, but hate, hate is a, is a harsh word. It's an embarrassing label to, well, to wear because, correct me if I'm wrong, nobody Nobody wants to be described by hate. Yes or no? Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be described by hate. So we have to, and we need to be very cautious with, with people who would openly admit that they, they hate someone. Uh, and they say it with, with pride. You know, I don't know, I don't think, I don't think I've ever hated a person before. But if I haven't, I've come about as close as I can get to it. And let me retract that. Let me just say there are at least times in my life where I've ticked over into hate for someone. You know what I'm talking about? So let's briefly, let's just stop a minute. And I want us to recognize six identifiers that can help us to understand if, if, we, struggle, if we struggle with hate. So here they are. Hate identifiers. Number one, if you passionately dislike someone, 
It could be that you're struggling with hatred of that person or that people group. Number two, if you detest their presence, it might mean that you are wrestling with some issues of hatred. Number three, if you wish nothing but harm on them, the chances are pretty good that you are hating that person or that group of people. If you would never pray for them. You ever thought about that one? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So maybe if we're not praying for those people, maybe it means that we might be harboring some hatred against them. Number five, if you are prejudiced towards a, toward a person's skin color, nationality, or ethnicity, it might mean that you hate them. And then finally, number six, if you don't believe that God loves them, then it might mean that you are struggling with hatred. And so those are, are harsh things to hear, and they're harsh things to say, and they're, you know, it, it's often, I think, easier maybe to say, well, that's somebody else, but I think it's important for us, because if we're trying to be the people of God who show the love of God to the people of God, then we have to make sure that if we're going to outlove the rest of the world, that we have to take time to do self-examination, right? Doesn't Scripture talk about that? That we're to look inward on our own life? That we're supposed to even do that before we gather around a table to commune together? We're supposed to examine ourselves, okay? And so we must examine this because this is very important because we are the people of God, supposed to be spreading the, the love of God. And so while these are difficult things to wrestle with they're very important and if we find that yeah okay i got some of these things going on well it doesn't mean it's the end of the world and it doesn't mean that you're necessarily a terrible person it just means that you're broken just like i'm broken and that we have to we have to trust in god to number one forgive us and to lead us out of that hatred right we have to trust in god we have to trust in our master teacher jesus and his teachings to show us the Show us the better way. Well, you know, when you read this story and you understand some of the background, there might even be a little bit of, of justification for Jonah's hate. Because Jonah knows something about the Assyrians, maybe things that you've never heard of before. They attacked the northern kingdom the ten tribes of Israel, and they ruled with terror. The Assyrian kings would brag on how they tortured those that they captured. They would often skin them alive. They would dismember and disembowel them. They would place the dead in public all over for people to see their reign of terror. Those that, that weren't killed were enslaved. They were a violent and, and bloodthirsty people. And to Jonah, this was personal. Jonah thought, if the violent repent, should God just forgive them without any consequences of their actions? And maybe that resonates with us just a little bit. Well, Jonah receives a second call. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, 
It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And Jonah answers the second call. And here's the thing. Jonah is now going to take up this mission of, of reconciliation. But think about this. Reconciliation from above, in other words, godly reconciliation, the reconciliation that we read about in the New Testament, Godly rep, uh, reconciliation comes with grace and love. And here's the thing. Jonah is the first recipient of that reconciliation in this story. Jonah answers the call, and he goes to Nineveh. And, and here's the thing. Even though Jonah was a, a reluctant prophet, he was an incredibly effective preacher. Incredibly effective because with a one-sentence sermon, all of eight words, he convicts the entire city of Nineveh. Uh, 3 verse 4 says, 40 more days, Nineveh, and you will be overthrown. And the people in Nineveh, they heard this message, and the whole city repented from, from top to bottom. Can you imagine what kind of revival that would bring? But there's more to the story. And I think it's what we read from the end of verse 10 and on that we see, I think we can feel the hatred in Jonah. That we can see the anger that he is dealing with. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Now then notice verse 1 of chapter 4. But this was very displeasing to Jonah. Can you imagine that? God is willing, not willing, God has chosen to relent from destroying a people. And his messenger is upset about it. That God is not going to wipe them out. That God's not going to destroy them. He's angry about that. He became angry. And he prayed to the... <laughs> he prayed to the Lord. You might want to underline that sentence. Okay? This is Jonah's prayer that he's about to deliver to God. Now that I, I get talking to God and sharing our anger with him and our frustration but I cannot wrap my mind around this prayer that we read. He said, oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God. Imagine that. Oh yeah, and you're merciful. And I knew, God, that you are slow to anger. That you're steadfast in your love for others. And that you were ready to relent from punishing. Jonah says a whole lot in what he doesn't say. Because I think while he is describing these attributes of God, I think he is revealing negative attributes in himself, is he not? He's revealing the opposite 
of, of what he feels or what he thinks about these Ninevites. God wants him to save the Ninevites. Jonah wants God to destroy the Ninevites. Why would another person or people want another person or people destroyed? What's the component? Hatred. And these were people of a different race, a different background, a different ethnicity than him. Now look at verse 3. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Can you feel that anger? Can you see and, and, and feel the hatred that Jonah has for these people? That I hate these people so much, and I hate that you have not destroyed them, that I can't even live with my own hatred, my own anger, God. So please, the best thing you can do for me is to strike me dead. Man, that's a powerful hatred. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city, and he sat down east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. You know what he's doing? He wants a front row seat for their destruction. He wants to be there. He wants to see it go down. Verse 6 says, The Lord appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head and to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. Do you see that? You see what hatred does, how it trivializes things? He hates that God is going to save this people. But what he is happy about is a plant. What he's happy about is shade. He's upset at his own discomfort, but he's not upset about the people of Nineveh that can be destroyed. He's happy that his discomfort is eased, but he's not happy that the souls of these people are being redeemed by God. Do you see it? That's what, this is what hatred does. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind so that it beat down on top of Jonah's head so that he became faint and again asks that he might die. Better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Yes. Angry enough to die, Jonah said. Over a bush. But I don't really think it's about the bush, do you? I think it's his disappointment that God has not destroyed the Ninevites. I think it's his anger at that. The Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And then God 
poses a question, and the book ends like that. It, 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 it's no resolution. It's sort of open-ended. God says, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which 20,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left lived? They're so backwards that they can't even tell left from right. They can't tell up from down and right from wrong. You're worried about a bush, and here's an entire people group that faces destruction, and you don't even care about that. Well, here's the thing. Jonah walked into that city. It was a three-day walk across the city. That's what the beginning of chapter 3 says. Jonah only devotes one day to this, one day to this task. He walks one day's journey in, and he preaches this message. He walks in there. He doesn't walk in there because he thinks this message is powerful, and I think even because he hopes that God is going to change the hearts of these people, and he hopes that people are going to turn back. Jonah is seeking retribution, but God is merciful. Jonah lacks compassion, but God is compassionate. Jonah is quick to get angry. I mean, he's getting angry over a bush. But God is slow to anger. Jonah's deficient in love. God is abounding in love. And see, the, the, the point of chapter 4 is it's not about Jonah's preaching. It's really not even about the faith of the Ninevites, but rather it's about God's extravagant, offensive mercy and grace and his desire to reconcile all people to himself. That's what this chapter is about. He wants to reconcile all people, which means he wants to reconcile me. He wants to reconcile you. And he calls us to be ministers and agents of reconciliation. Which means if this is God's agenda, then it should be our agenda. We should be the people of reconciliation. But sometimes hatred gets in and it, it takes over and it, it keeps us from doing things. This is a case study in that God always demonstrates love for, for all people. Are you being moved to, to love people even when it seems impossible? And if the answer is yes, that's God's grace and love working in your life. When you pray, are you praying for your enemies and those that, that wish to do you harm? If you are, that's the power of Christ working within you. Are you going out of your way to love people who aren't like you? That is showing the love of God. On October 15th, 1962, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke at King Chapel at Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa. He concluded his speech with these words. I am convinced that men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other. And they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. That's not what God longs for. 
God longs to see all people of every nation and every race brought together under the the banner of Christ. And so I want to encourage you to answer the call to show people the way to find reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Even, even when grace, the grace that God provides, goes against what you believe to be fair. Even when it wars against our need for justice. As, as, as present day Christians, we serve in the role of Jonah. He called Jonah twice, demonstrating his desire to save and love him. Okay? Jonah was to be an agent of reconciliation. The story is open-ended. Are we going to respond the way Jonah did with anger and hatred and bitterness? Or are we going to respond with love and the grace and the mercy and all those adjectives that, that Jonah lays out describing the love of, uh, the love of God? See, you may be reluctant, but God can use a reluctant prophet and he can use reluctant people to bring reconciliation to those that we come in contact with. Jesus uses reluctant prophets because God is the sole provider of that grace and he lavishly bestows it on his people. So will you become an agent of reconciliation? Or are you too, like Jonah, resisting God's call? The call to stand against hatred. The call to stand against racism. The call to stand against prejudiceness. The call to show love and grace and mercy to people, no matter who they are, where they come from, what their background is, or what their skin color might be. Are you running from reconciliation? Maybe you yourself need to be reconciled. And if you're wrestling with some of these things, then I think the answer is obvious that you need to be reconciled in your own life. If you deal with those things, if you can answer and identify those, those things that we looked at earlier that might suggest that hatred is a struggle for you, then what you need is reconciliation. Because we cannot call ourselves the people of God if we don't show people the love of God. God is not in that. Because it doesn't say God is hate. It says God is love. I want you to say that with me. God is love. Say it again. God is love. God is love. And so it might mean that if you're wrestling with some of those things, that you need a reconciliation. Today is that day. Don't wait another minute. Be reconciled to God, just as Paul would write in the Scriptures. Be reconciled to God. But it might mean that you are reconciled to God, but you see and recognize that there's other places where reconciliation is not happening, and maybe you're choosing to hold back from that. Run to it. Embrace it. Step into the fray. And bring about the peace.
peace of God. Be a peacemaker. And I know it can be difficult. Grace is difficult, is it not? It's tough. Grace is tough. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not often profound, okay? But every now and then I, I stumble onto something. And a few years ago, I was thinking about a situation where I had been extended some grace. And it was in that moment that this thought came to me. And it's very simply this. And I want you to think about this. Grace is expensive to the one who gives it. It is priceless to the one who receives it. And it is offensive to the one who doesn't understand it. Does that make sense? We want to be the people who view grace as priceless and yet costly. Because the grace that we have been given from God was both priceless and costly. It cost Jesus his life so that we can be reconciled to God. We must be agents of reconciliation but reconciliation from above comes with grace and love can you be reconciled to God but yet despise his love and grace given to those people is your belief of the is your belief in the gospel shaped by your need for fairness your need for justice the grace and love of God wrecks our sensibilities. The people that God chooses to include in his story shatters our walls of division. God's call comes with an abundant grace and love that strengthens the fail of heart, that gives us peace in the midst of our turmoil, that compels us to love when all we hear is hate. It is given to make one nation of God, one people of God, one kingdom of God. One of the places where we experience this grace is around the table. It's around the table that we should be reminded of who we are and whose we are. It's around the table that is you take that bread and you pass it that we remember that is the body of Christ. It's when we share the cup that we realize that this is representing the blood of Christ that was poured out for all of us so that we can experience reconciliation. You realize when we gather around the table as family, we are participating in reconciliation. We are celebrating our reconciliation. And God is inviting us into more of that every day in a deeper and deeper way. But it also affirms our calling that we are to be 
agents of reconciliation. 